Welcome back to the Everybody Soccer Podcast. This is your host, Bill Reno. We return after a summer break with Steve Holroyd to discuss a number of non-goalkeeping events, specifically the 2019 Hall of Fame class, which is about the first half of the episode, the upcoming MLSCBA, which is about the back half of the episode, and a mini-documentary PBS put out on the Bethlehem Steel, which Steve was involved with, and that's kind of scattered in and out of the episode. So while Steve is not technically a goalkeeper, he provides a point of view as a historian and a labor lawyer that many can't match. So getting Steve in really fits the everybody and everybody soccer, although we'll be getting back to goalkeeping in the next episodes. So here's Steve Holroyd on the 2019 Hall of Fame class, the upcoming MLS CBA, and the Bethlehem Steel's legacy. Someone might be calling me a two, but I'll just call them back. Uh, that, only po- that only popped up like a half an hour ago. I'll call you after two. All right. I'll meet you here. I'm not. There it is. <laughs> okay. Very well. I'll, I'll try not to keep you too long. But uh, no, I'm really excited to get back with you. I know we talked about in the spring a little bit. The summer kind of came and went for me. But um, I've, I've been kind of looking at the, the Hall of Fame inductions. And I, I've been kind of thinking back on, um, you know, I visited back at the start of the year. We had talked about that last time we, we crossed over. Um, but I think the, the thing I'm kind of running in with the Hall of Fame, and we'll talk about the inductees here in a sec, um, but I think my major complaint, I, of course, is, you know, it's got a nice setup. I like the walkthrough, and, and you had talked about how it's not your, your father's museum uh, or your father's hall, hall of Fame. It's kind of got, it feels new and fresh. But I, I feel like the thing I'm running into now is when I go there, it feels like there's a slew of people that the Hall of Fame has no interest in convincing me why they should be there. Like, the, there's like the big names, of course, but it feels like there's this big chunk of people, and I don't know if most of those are the old builders or some of those are old players, but as I, there's something that you can scroll through there to go, you know, Hall of Fame by Hall of Fame. You can see each person, see a little bio on, but some people seem obviously way more important than others. So I, I don't know if that's something you had felt like when you had crossed over when you, when you were there, but. I think that's kind of my major complaint after being there and kind of seeing the league, see the Hall of Fame be rolled out for a year or so now. I guess my my thought was it's and it's not really a complaint I guess in the grand scheme of things, but it seems the hall it, the hall spends so much time just just pointing out that soccer's always been here, which which is not which is not a bad goal. You know, but but yeah, I think you're right. A lot of the people, you know, some of the individuals we should be talking about, um, simply aren't mentioned. You know, uh, and it seems like those who are mentioned, uh, and, and and like Billy Gonzalez is a bad example because he's clearly someone who who should be remembered. But it seems like he's mainly there because his family had the foresight to keep some of his stuff, and thus they were in a position to donate it, yeah. as opposed to you know. Alex McNabb may be just as memorable, but no one has any of his stuff, so we won't mention him. And and I guess anyone Gonzalez is being mentioned, it's not so much about how great he was, as it was. Oh look, Billy played, and here's his medals from winning in the ASL. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, and again, and and it, 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 that's not. I'm I'm being honest when I say that's not a criticism because again, one thing I found out, you know, twenty some years ago is that it's shocking how little. Uh, of uh, soccer memorabilia from really even prior to the North American Soccer League exists in any form. I mean, I, I, there's still no one has found any uniform, any scrap of a uniform from the original ASL. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised to see they had winners' medals uh, from the Gonzalez family collection. Right. So, as opposed to you know baseball, you, you can't you, know, you go on eBay and find 
Federal League balls from 1914, and, and, and they're ubiquitous, you know. So I, I get that even in, in trying to give the casual fans something to see about the old days of the game, it's tough. But, but yeah, it, 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 the Hall seems much more focused on saying, hey, we've always been here, which, again, is an admirable goal because, you know, too many people like to think it started in 1994 or if they're really woke, 1975 when Pele came, right? Um, so so it's, it's an admirable goal. But, yeah, a lot, a lot of the individuals um, get lost in a shuffle. And, and, and maybe we're just spoiled. I mean, the, in the sense that, you know, probably the best Hall of Fame remains one of the first, which is baseball. And baseball, because of stats and 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 personalities and and all the one on one situations, lends itself well to really wanting to uh, deify individuals. And so you're used to baseball being about all the individuals, and here's their plaques and their busts and what have you. Um, and it's it's harder to come by in the other sports, even in a sport like basketball, which is a little more one on one at times. And, and soccer doesn't have any of that. So they're just, I think they're just pushing the game. Um, and a lot of the personalities uh, are, are just left behind. I just want to point out, I think that's the first time someone's used the word woke uh, for my <laughs> podcast. So they got, you've, you've notched that achievement. Um, but no, I, I, I was going to hold off on the, the Beth, Bethlehem Steel documentary you did with uh, PBS. Was that right? Was it PBS? Yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Allentown PBS. Okay, yes. okay. I was going to hold off on that, but I, I think this is a nice transition already. But you, you talk about the um, – I mean, there's kind of a barrier there with um, the lack of the survivability of so many leagues and so much soccer before 94. Um, but I thought that was a, a very relatable presentation of something that was, you know, 100 years old, that – um, this idea that a team was dominant, um, but also there was a very uh, like humanistic sentiment to it. I guess I'm trying to think the right phrase, but it, it, it seemed like something I could relate with uh, from like a personal level of oh, this is more than just a soccer team. You know, th- there's something more going on here. So, and thinking back to it, there wasn't much footage on it, and as I was, as I was watching some of the footage, I was thinking, is this just you know, you think of a lot of soccer footage that survived from that area. It's so grainy and washed out. It's hard to tell anything from it. So I was kind of thinking, I was like, this could be any any two teams. I don't, like, I, I would believe it. You know, I don't know. Um, but I, I thought the, the documentary was about 30 minutes long, that it covered a good chunk of, of time there. Um, I feel like that would be a good uh, headway for the Hall of Fame to kind of go down that route of saying, hey, yes, we don't have, you know, jerseys. We don't have video. Um, the stats we have are maybe questionable or, or loose, or we don't even have any. But here's why they're important. And I, so I, I was really impressed with the documentary, and it was kind of nice to see a, a familiar face and voice on there. So that was a plus. <laughs> but I uh, no, I, I thought that I, that seems like something the Hall of Fame isn't quite doing as much. Uh, when I mean, it feels like y'all proved that you could. Yeah, and, I, and apparently that thing was thrown together in about three weeks. Um, I got the call. I got a, an almost panicked call from um, uh, from the guy who put it together. Um, uh, if I give me a second, I'll remember his name, um, which is pretty bad on my part. Um, <laughs> Some historian. Uh, uh, no, yeah, Dan Ray. Yeah, I was going to say Tom. It's Dan. Dan Ray was the guy who put that put that together, and he and he and, and he called me at the last second, kind of in a panic, because he had been 
in touch with uh, Dan Morrison, who's pretty much known as the guy when it comes to Bethlehem Steel history. And somewhere along the line, there was a disconnect, and he couldn't get a hold of him anymore. And he had to do this documentary, and he needed talking heads. And uh, and, and if you didn't, you've seen it, it, it starts out about Bethlehem Steel, but it turns into a, a, you know a, a piece about soccer in the Lehigh Valley generally, which I think is what lends that that um, I guess personal element you were talking about. Uh, they talk about the Pennsylvania Stoners, which is a great story in and of itself. And then it turns into, and I don't say this in a snarky way, then it turns into basically an infomercial to, to get public funding for a soccer stadium in the Lehigh Valley, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, which which you know makes sense because it, 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 I think it would be great if if, uh, if full-time soccer could return to the area. I mean, the current version of Bethlehem Steel is playing at the Philadelphia Union Stadium because of lighting issues uh, so but but you know going to your point though even there and i've learned a long time ago that all documentaries do this including like even the great ken burns stuff you know someone will be talking about something and they'll throw up random footage and make you believe it's it <laughs> yeah. um you know you know so, so you know one point they're talking about bethlehem steel and they're showing the uh, the footage i unearthed about oh, like six years ago now whatever it was of the 1924 Open Cup final, which was the St. Louis team versus Fall River Marksman. At one point, they used a photo of, um, of Ruben Mendoza, uh, a great St. Louis striker from the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, obviously, it had nothing to do with any of the time period <laughs> yeah. as being addressed, but it was a great photo because he's doing a bicycle kick. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but, but again, given the dearth of materials, I guess that's something soccer has to resort to because, you know, again, not for, notwithstanding the great run Bethlehem Steel had in the, in the teens and the early 20s. It wasn't like newsreels were covering it. Um, there was no television. Uh, and even though the early television stuff, that all got wiped anyway. But yeah, you get, the, the stuff's not there. I mean, you, you, can't even, uh, you can't even draw upon newspaper photos. So you do what you have to because, uh, you know, otherwise you just have just, just seeing my face talking about it and it gets boring. So, <laughs> so you know, Dan did a really good job given what he had. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but going to your point, yeah, it it um, uh, yeah, yeah, is that something the hall should be doing? Uh, I don't know if the, I don't know if the hall sees that as its function because again, this version of the hall exists because uh, you know uh, the owners of an MLS team were willing to bankroll it because you know the original standalone hall just didn't do all that well, and we can guess as to why, but it just it didn't survive, and. I, and, and, and again, I, I don't say this in a critical way. I've learned to accept certain things, but I think the current hall is, at least as of now, is simply meant to be an advertisement for the sport in this country. Here's something to do before the game, before going to an FC Dallas game. Stop in, look at the cool stuff, and then go watch, you know, FC Dallas play. And 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 um, there's no, uh, there's it's creating like a research library. Is still not at all priority. They're trying to bring the stuff at least to the Frisco area and getting getting out of the uh, basement in North Carolina where a lot of it sits now. Um, but you know, it's not like on on the footprint of the hall itself. They 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 you know want to have any kind of research facility available. Um, it's it's just not that important. It's basically come in, look at the pretty trinkets. And go enjoy a game, sure. and that's a start. I mean, it, it beats the alternative, which was Nothing, you had to yeah. drive to Oneonta to see to see. And Oni, Oneonta was a wonderful facility, but it still remains a head scratcher as to why it was there. Huh. 
um, other than Hartwick had some good teams in the 70s, right? Um, it's, it's not like even Cooperstown, even though it's a myth, uh, at least Cooperstown was picked because that was the so-called birthplace of the game of baseball. Canton for football, you know, Springfield, Massachusetts for basketball. There's at least a connection. I have no idea where Oneonta came from, and, and, and it was kind of remote. I mean, people weren't making that trip for the soccer hall. So at least it's there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, how motivated they are to put out, you know, is the hall going to put out um, DVDs that you can buy while you're there that might feature great teams or great players? I don't think that's on their agenda yet. I don't know if it ever will be. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I went there and I was, I was kind of excited about making multiple trips, but after one trip, I felt like I kind of conquered it in some sense. I mean, that, that's kind of the wrong word, but I, I felt like I had seen what I wanted to see. And unless they bring in, you know, New Jersey's or, or what have you, I, it feels like it's, there's not a huge incentive for me to go back. I, I think ideally it'd like to be a, for me, it'd be a place where I could if go back every time and learn something new. But I feel like of all, everything they've presented, I feel like, okay, yeah, I got it. You know, there, there's not, and I think this would be kind of a good route with the, the little, you know, mini documentaries or, or DVDs you're talking about of putting out information of like, hey, here's something you didn't know that you could learn about that is relevant for American soccer history. But, you know, like you're saying, I don't know if that's on the agenda or not. Yeah, and I think you're right. It is the type of thing that once you've seen it, you've seen it. But if it's any consolation, I was kind of surprised. Uh, I was in Toronto this past, uh, you know, a couple months ago in May, and I visited the Hockey Hall of Fame. And, you know, what you see in the postcard is, is the Hockey Hall of Fame. It's, uh, the facade is an old bank building. Um, and, and it's and it, it's a small old bank building, and that's where they keep the trophies, and that's where you can see the names of people. But the hall that the public wants to see is in the basement of a food court. It's adjacent to a food food court, basically, and it looks almost exactly like the soccer hall. I mean, I guess the people behind developing the new soccer hall, uh, you know, I, I use the mall kiosk um, uh, comparison when I talked about this last time, but you know, they, I, I guess they kind of realized the public wants to be entertained. They're not even there so much to learn. If they, if they figure something out along the way, that's fine, but they want to see the old Jersey. They want the interactive stuff. The hockey hall is filled with, you know, here, come shoot on this legendary goaltender <laughs> yeah. type of thing. Um, and, and so you know, it's funny. I, I came out of the hockey hall thinking, wow, it's just like the soccer hall. And yeah, same thing. I've seen it all. Now the hockey hall at least changed some things out. Like when I was there, it was the Gordie Howe and Wayne Gretzky uh, combined exhibit. I guess you know connecting the two because uh, they played together. They you know I guess Wayne met Gordie when he was 13, and, and they played together in the WHA and everything else. And they'll change that out, and in a few months it'll be something else. Yeah, I don't know if the soccer hall's got uh, room for that because even even with the hockey hall, sort of like uh, that was in what would be approximate to a foyer to the rest of the to the rest of the hall the soccer hall is not really set up that way but yeah it, it's something like that at least you know if you went to three fc dallas games a year uh, to give you a reason to go into the hall uh because at least there's something new yeah. uh, again I, I don't know if that's there yet because it's less than a year old i mean they just got sure, the thing sure. open so uh, they're still they're still finding their own way i suppose yeah. Th- thinking about because i'm not I haven't been to the hockey hall of fame but Think about the interactive stuff at the the soccer hall of fame of how I'm trying to remember what they were. One of them was like you could recreate the saves that Howard and Scurry had done. I I don't even remember the ex, the actual saves that they did. 
there was some stuff you could like compete, I think, against. But I was thinking how it, it would make more sense if like if there was something where I was trying to score on a Hall of Fame, you know, hockey goaltender or soccer with like you know trying to score in Howard or something. I feel like I should fail every time. Like as the visitor, <laughs> you should lose more times than not. Like oh, this is why. Like if I'm scoring on them, they must not be very good. So I don't. I uh, it seems like that was kind of a missed opportunity for them there. But um, well, I so our our last induction here. We'll kind of wrap up the the Hall of Fame here segment because I want to get to the CBA uh, portion here in a little bit. But we just saw we saw Abby Wambach and uh, Gulati get in. And I think the thing that kind of missed me the most about the ballot was, or I guess two things, was one, like how low Wombeck was. Because we saw it with the Baseball Hall of Fame just this last year with Rivera of how he was, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that he was the first inductee who had a unanimous vote since the He was, yeah. The first, yeah. I don't even know if the first class had one or not. But, I, yeah, so I, it, they kind of showed, like, how difficult it is to get that high up. But for Wombeck... I'm not saying it should have been unanimous, but 80% seemed pretty low for someone who was the, the face of the program for so long. But then also you, you look at the rest of the, not the roster, but the candidates that didn't get in. Um, and it seems like there was a little bit of kind of no, some no-brainer picks there. And so I know they've got, everyone has 10 votes. And it's, so there, there's not a problem as far as like number of votes, but it does seem odd that the, the, the winning picks, I guess, is a really low percentage for really everyone involved. Um, but I, I'm not sure quite how they go about that. They, they've been pretty shy about revealing voting or who, who votes and what the numbers are. But uh, it, seems, it just seems a little odd that some of the bigger faces that we've, we've seen through our generation struggle to get into the hall. I mean, Scurry was another one that I think she got in on her third or fourth time. And it, it just seems like there's been a hurdle for some players there to get in, but I'm not sure what the, what the problem is. Is that, is that something you've recognized either or? I mean, I, I, I've seen that. I mean, for, somehow I'm not a voter. I've never quite figured out why that's the case. And I know some people are and, and they're deserving. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when, when you're looking at percentages, I mean, yeah, yeah, think about it. Mario, Mariana Rivera was the first unanimous uh, inductee in baseball. That means, you know, William Hayes, Hank Aaron, um, you can name any one of a number of, of, of prior inductees, were less than 100%. Because there's always personality. I mean, when you, when you have humans doing the picking, you know, someone's always going to say, well, she was rude to me during a post-game presser, so I'm not going to vote for her. Yeah. I, so, once, I mean, I, I, I think people get wrapped up about the percentages the year they're inducted, and then no one talks about it ever again. So the fact that Abby Wambach only got 80% is it because, uh, and, and going to the Brianna Scary uh, thing, I, I think there's still a perception. I think it's changing now because the rest of the world is catching up. But I think with a, with a number of people, there's still a perception that the great women players, uh, the, you know, the class of 99, the 99ers, and, and Wambach was just past that. Um, uh, so it goes back to something I said uh, in the Bethlehem Steel documentary. They sort of ran up all their numbers in an era when no one else was really playing. Sure. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, you know, sure, Brianna Scurry was on a World Cup winner and this and that and made a clutch save even though she cheated, blah, blah, blah. But, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, but no one else is really playing. You know, Abby Wambach scored 
lots of goals, but you know the bulk of them were back when the rest of the world hadn't caught up yet. You know, as opposed to now, now it's pretty level playing field. There's probably an inherent bias towards women, women athletes generally. Although I tend to think you see that a lot less in soccer than the other sports, because it is, it is the exact same game, same rules, same field size, same ball size, everything else, as opposed to any other team sport you can name. Um, but uh, but it, it may also be a function of, you know, I, I thought it was interesting. This year there were two inductees, a builder and a player, which which sort of, I mean, and I was doing the checking today. This hall, the, the soccer hall remains basically, almost literally, I think it's like 153 to 151, Player to builder. There's like a 50 yeah, 50 ratio. Yeah, it's close, yeah. Players to builders. That's unheard of. You know, and, and that's a vestige from that period prior to about 1999 when the Society for American Soccer History, you know, uh, and Roger Holloway in particular, sort of getting involved in saying we've got to fix the hall because from about 1950 until 1999, it really was an old boys club where various youth administrators would scratch each other's backs. Hey, you vote for me, I'll vote for you. We'll both be Hall of Famers, ha, huh? you know? And, 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 uh, and so, you know, so it's still about 50-50. I mean, I, I said before in the last podcast, and I, and, I, and, and I say this respectfully, I'm not really trying to be a troublemaker, but I really would, if I had my drugs, I would blow the whole thing up and start all over because there's just so many people who don't, Belong, and that includes some players. I mean, in 1976, and what was a nice gesture in the bicentennial, uh, the soccer hall inducted the entire 1950 World Cup team. I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. Why? Yeah. <laughs> including, including like the third string goalkeeper. I mean, yeah. so that's again, it's a nice gesture if you want to induct a team. I said, you know, just have a separate thing. But they got in as individuals. So even when I'm talking about 50-50. You know, builders and players. There's like 18 players you could take off that they really don't belong. Yeah. I mean, the one guy I was just checking randomly. One guy had one cap. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and it was in '48. Wasn't even with the 1950 team. So I mean, it, 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 and and you know, some and and the hall itself never really understood its mission. Like, you know, I I I remain like okay. I understand how Pele's in there. He only played here three years, actually two and a half years, and uh, you know and. Yeah, he, he, he was good in '76, but he was only here half the season in '75, and, and almost took half of '77 off before, you know, deciding the rally. Um, okay, he's in the hall because of his impact. Maybe he should be a builder instead of a player. But some of these other North American soccer league players, he just like, you know, like Carlos Alberto. He was, I know he's an all-time great, but here he was good. He came here late in his career. He was good. He was a good player surrounded by stars. So, I mean, I'm not quite sure why he's in an American Hall of Fame. And and it begs the question, what's an American Hall of Fame supposed to honor? Is it going to honor American players only? So that means, so like, will you induct a Christian Pulisic after his career is over? Let's assume he never comes to MLS. Uh, and, and, And putting aside the contributions he's surely going to be making to the national team. You know, do you, do you honor a Christian Pulisic? How about a better example? Do you honor a Giuseppe Rossi? Who's you know who was an American citizen even though he chose not to play for the team? And had, you know, so we're here to honor Americans, or we're here to honor players who starred in the American leagues, which means maybe you're not worried about national team stuff so much. It's and it and it's not the Hall's fault. I mean, it's it's part of the quirks of the game of soccer. It being such an international game, where you know the other the other sports, it's easy. If you're a great player, you played here in the NBA, NHL. Uh, you know, Major League Baseball, the best leagues in the world for those sports are here. 
So it's really easy. You pick a guy who is great in that league, you've got an all-time great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, soccer's different. You know, you, 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 you may have great Americans who will never play a game here. So do we honor them? Or is it more to honor those who, who contributed to, uh, you know, to the sport on American soil, which necessarily is going to result in a hall that's going to be, over, uh, going to be uh, dominated by foreign players because that's just been the nature of the game here. In fact, even with the NASL era, um, with the NASL players, I think uh, this is a slight exaggeration on my part, but it, it, it's close to being true. There are more Canadians, Canadian-born players in the American Hall of Fame from the North American Soccer League era than Americans. And part of that's a function of the Canadian teams would play Canadians, uh, as opposed to the U.S. teams are a little less willing to do so. But it's, it, it, it's like, okay, well, that's great, but should they be in the American Hall? Should they should they instead just be in the Canadian Hall? It, it's tough. I mean, uh, and, I, and I, I still think the Hall's trying to find its way as to what exactly it's supposed to be honoring. Yeah. No, uh, No. I absolutely. And I, I think you're the – I have to go back and look. Do you know what the numbers are on the Canadians, Americans from the NASL era that are in the Hall of Fame? Just off the top of your head. Um, off the top of my head, it was Leonard Ducey, Wilson. No, off the top of my head, I can't. But I remember – Looking at the names on the wall, and because because they're kind of clumped up. I mean, when they're inducted, so it's it's, it's easier to find. And I, I was pointing out to someone at the time when I was at Frisco last year. Like, look at that! You can want to. There's actually more Canadians. I, that's that's changed recently because like Al Troscott, and they finally started inducting some American yeah. NASL stars. But initially, it, it was uh, yeah, it, even now I'd say it's at least half and half yeah. from the NASL year. Well, I well, I guess more to your your bigger point there of them still trying to find their way, which is kind of crazy to think about that they've been going for 60, 70 years now. I can't, I don't know when they started, but they, I always thought it was kind of funny that the 1950 men's team got in for essentially winning one game. That was like, that. Yeah, that's, what yeah. they, that's what they did. But like the, the 91 women's world cup, they got the medal of honor, but that one's, that one's kind of an odd, like, I, I guess, I, I know that the it's presented as like the highest achievement. They're like, hey, this is like your your top dogs here, but it was just kind of an odd of like, well, why did why why is there like a whole team in there? But then like you've got the ninety one women's national team, which I mean there aren't many from that team that are in the in the Hall of Fame. I know the starting goalkeeper Mary Harvey has really struggled to get through the veteran uh, selection process. Um, but I, I have to go back and look at them. But I know there aren't many from there. I, it, so, again, to your point, it just all seems very um, being pushed by the wind. You know, for maybe a certain time, they were really focused on getting these builders in. But now they've kind of pushed away from that. But at another time, they wanted to reward such and such. And um, I was, re- or was reading in a, in an interview from Roger Alloway about, and this is from maybe three or four years ago, but about the selection process, and he's kind of detailing a lot of it. But at the end of it, he kind of goes out of his way to, which you know, I think it was a good point by him, but he starts naming some groups of people that struggle to get in the Hall of Fame. So he, he named referees, which is, I mean, I know maybe one or two, if I thought really hard off the top of my head, uh, of, of referees in the professional game. So he's probably absolutely right on that, but I honestly just don't know. Um, but then he also pointed out foreigners in MLS have, have really struggled to get in as well. Um, and not that those were the only two groups, but it does feel like there's – there's a number of groups out there that really struggle to get in. Um, I mean, and, and yes, like Wombeck's percentage was kind of low, but I mean, you even look at, you know, Boca Negra didn't get in. Um, Trendolo didn't get in. You know, it, it seems like these big iconic players,
players at the time, for whatever reason, have struggled to like make that jump when they seem kind of gimmies. Uh, well, I, I, th- I think part of the problem there is though too. I mean, there's there seems to be a lot of turnover in in who covers the game here, and even and even in the context of MLS itself. I and mean, when we talk about 1.0, 2.0, I think we're at 3.0 now. And yeah, like Trundolo, he should be in for lots of different reasons. Um, although maybe many of his best years were probably pre MLS, you know, uh, but he's just just forgotten. Um, it's almost like, you know, if, I guess an example would be if, if they were starting up the football hall of fame today, because again, in many ways you have to consider that the modern soccer hall of fame hall of fame we have now is kind of new. I mean, as far as rigid, formalized induction, you know, selection processes, if they, if they open a football, an American football hall of fame today, Sammy Baugh, Y.A. Tittle, these guys, George Blanda. Yeah. These guys wouldn't get in because you know current people can't relate to the way the game was played then. Uh, it's all a different game. It doesn't count. Basketball's in the same boat. I mean, George Mikan, you know, it would be forgotten. He's just you know big, slow, white guy. Not not the dominant force he was in his era. You know, I, and I think you know when you talk about Bocanegra, when you talk about a lot of these 1.0 stars, including the foreign guys like Marco Echeverri, you know, who who like bossed this league for five years. Um, and, and they're just forgotten because oh, that's irrelevant. That's it's a it's an era we're ashamed of. I mean, who yeah. knows what goes through people's heads? Um, and, and 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 so yes, yeah, so that's what you have. I mean, right, foreign MLSers can't get in. It's ironic. You know, American NASLers can't get in. Foreign <laughs> MLSers can't get in. Again, it's just really and 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 I just point this out. It's not a criticism because it's they it's. It, it, Soccer's kind of tough that way. But it goes back to, again, at some point the hall needs to figure out what exactly it's supposed to be honoring. Yeah. And, and, and um, it may make life a little easier. Well, uh, Alloway had pointed out that the, the criteria um, selection process had like been mo- more spelled out, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. So previously it was a little more ambiguous and how this was actually a big help. And I don't know how the voting went. I mean, I guess I can look, but like, I don't really know how, what went through voters head or how that all worked out, but it seems like them trying to detail these accomplishments of you have to have done this, you have to have done that. It ends up kind of backfiring on them. And I would almost feel like they'd be better off of just having like a very vague, ambiguous criteria of like, Hey, did they help out with American soccer? Yes or no. And then you can kind of go from there. But with, it seems with all these kind of milestones that players have to hit, you end up accidentally boxing people out, which I mean, maybe there's no good solution, but it just seems kind of a mess at the moment. Yeah, I thought, because I remember when, because it was Roger who started to try to introduce the concept of criteria, and and early on it was tough because, you know, MLS was only three years old, and, and the, applying that criteria, any kind of criteria based on caps, or all-star teams or cups was tough in the NASL era because, again, the national team wasn't playing all that frequently. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I thought, because I was looking at it this morning, I thought the current criteria is going to work going forward. I think it's reasonable. I mean, 20 caps or five years in the league, in, in an American league, and uh, and having won either a title, a cup, or made an all-star team Seems reasonable. I mean, I'm with you. I mean, I prefer to just let the market decide, like with baseball. I mean, basically, anyone after they've retired five years, I think virtually everyone's name's on a list, and then the market decides. And if you get less than 
sir, you're off, you know. And I, but uh, you know, in, in five years in the league and having the win, I mean, ordinarily I'd chafe at having to win a title because that, that would like, you know, in football, that would bar Dan Marino. But then they throw in the All Star game and say, okay, I suppose. And again, we're not talking about postseason selected by the press, but I guess the midseason you get picked, and there's you know there's there's plenty of room there. I I, I don't I, I even with this criteria, I don't see anyone falling through the cracks. But yeah, you're right. When you're talking about criteria, like if it was only the 20 caps, well then you're like, okay, well does that exclude a Taylor Twellman who was just one of those guys, and yeah. and it's not exclusive to America. Lots of leagues have them. A guy who can dominate in the domestic league but just never produced internationally. Do you want to exclude him? No. Now he'll fit. I, I think. I hope he has five years in uh, pre-concussion. But, um, but yeah, he was an all-star. You would hope so. Okay, so he's there. But it's still. It, it's. Your I think your concern is legit. I mean, anytime you're having these hard criteria, you're going to run into someone who everyone remembers was really good. But oh, gee, he doesn't fit in these boxes. That's sort. Of, that's sort of what kept Ruben Mendoza out. Now he's he's in the veteran pool now, so it doesn't matter. But early on. Uh, there was the five cap requirement. I think he only had four. You know, in an era when the team only played once a year. I mean, it wasn't really his fault. And so, and he didn't get in, although all his St. Louis contemporaries did. And and now he's not even thought about. So you know, and of course he had passed away a couple of years ago. He's one of those guys. Gee, it'd be nice to honor some of these guys while they're still alive. Well, they're the guys from the fifties. I mean, Walt Park passed away last year. I mean, and of course he was in, but gives you an idea of how the great stars of the '50s of that period between the modern era, which we'll say is you know North American Soccer League '67-'68, uh, they're gone. They're going and they're gone. So it's a shame that they're never going to get their due. Um, and, I, and it's but especially now that we're down the one league, essentially one Division One league. Um, I don't know how hard it would be to say, okay, here's everyone who retired five years ago. They're on the list. Vote for who you want, and if you don't make it, if you don't make a certain threshold, you're not on the ballot for next year. I think baseball does it right. Yeah. Uh, and you know, while people complain about again the secrecy there, it's generally when they complain about how like a, how Hank Aaron didn't get 100. You know, percent How do you not give Hank Aaron? Yeah. All right. So so, but but who cares? The guy's in. Um, so you know, if if you were I mean, the the indoor Hall of Fame, there is a there is an indoor soccer Hall of Fame. It's largely an online presence, but it's nevertheless you know it it, it holds itself out. It's got steady pool of voters made up of writers uh, and historians like me and a lot of ex players. And that's and the list goes out. It's pretty much here's everyone you decide. And and it, and and you get consensus. It's not like oh. The votes are so spread out, so now no one's got more than no. I mean, again, people know. People yeah. know. That, okay, yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's clearly you know uh, the, the Hector Marinaro belongs in there, uh, just as clearly maybe um, uh, just picking a name, Chris Catania doesn't you know because he had two years in or whatever. We know that we can figure that out. So, um, uh, again, but I think this is this the whole criteria thing is itself a vestige of when. Roger was trying to standardize things so it would stop, you know, um, some youth coach who happened to play one game in 1968 <laughs> for the Atlanta Chiefs getting in, you know, yeah. uh, ostensibly as a player. Yeah. Uh, you always manage to, every time we talk, you throw out all these names. I'm just kind of nodding my head to like, uh, I guess that's a real person because I, I don't know who <laughs> that person is. Um, but I, I'm down here in Dallas, and I, I was driving by, and I, I found out the Bowling Hall of Fame is here in Dallas. And oh, yeah? um, 
I, it's something there's this ginormous like 20 foot tall bowling pin out front and um it's just kind of i mean it's like awesome but also ridiculous at the same time but every time i pass them i think like man i like i kind of want to go in but it, i'm i'm worried to be like disappointed so maybe like the mystique of like oh a bowling hall of fame is better than the actual bowling hall of fame um mm-hmm. i'll probably go in there at some point but yeah i found that out this last week so uh not quite related but um but I, I do want to move over to the, the CBA or the upcoming, I guess, CBA for, for MLS here. And I remember, I can't remember the podcast, but you had done a podcast on the NESL strike. Was that Good Seats available? What yeah, was Good Seats. I, I was with Tim. Yeah, Good yeah. Seats. Yeah. yeah, and I, I really enjoyed that. That was something I, I didn't even know about. Um, so that was, that was really interesting learning on that. Um, one thing that you had talked about in there, and, and correct me if I get any of this wrong, but you had talked about how regionalized uh, the strike was and that – some teams were fully committed, and I can't remember which ones were and which ones weren't. But some were fully committed, and some were not committed at all, and they just kept playing. And so it was kind of hard to to get everyone on board. And so I guess and it's a little bit of a different situation now with MLS and the players' union. Um, but it seemed like for the NSL players that they struggled to flex their muscles correctly. So I get I guess it, I get one. Correct me if any of that is wrong. But two, my main question is how does how do the MLS players flex their muscles correctly into getting what they want and what is kind of a fool's errand where they're wasting their time. Well, and for new listeners, I preface this with, I am a labor attorney. I represent unions. So this oh, is kind yes. of in my wheelhouse. <laughs> um, the, the, the overarching problem that's going to be, that's going to be, uh, that the NASL had to face and MLS is going to face is having a membership that's fully invested in the fight and that's and that's and and that's basically code and and i I hesitate to frame it like this because given the current politics there's been a demonization of of immigrants so i'm not looking to do that but in the world of soccer the, the fact is that there's the domestic players and the international players and 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 the international players both in 1979, during the North American Soccer League strike, uh, and today, simply don't appear to have, they're not as invested in the issues as the domestic, quote, full-time players are. And, and, that's, and that's the main hurdle the MLS, the MLS Players Union is going to have to face. Now, the North, the North American Soccer League strike is, is probably not really the acid test you want to look at because the strike itself was dumb in the sense that what they were striking for, there's, there's one thing where I'm holding out because I want more money. I'm holding out because I want first-class air travel. I'm holding out because I want free agency. Those are real things you can, you can sink your teeth into. In 79, for reasons that I won't burden this, con- this conversation with, the, 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 the NASL players union said, well, we're going to go on strike to force the league to recognize us, even though we've already won an election and the, North, and the, and the National Labor Relations Board has already certified us. And and the the appeal is still pending. I mean, we already have this, but we're going to go on strike to force them to basically give up their legal right to appeal and sit and negotiate with us now. Not even get money, but sit and talk to us now. So you're talking to me as a player. Wait, you want me to skip a paycheck, not play, maybe get cut because some union leaders got cut along the way? Uh, for what? Nah, I'm not that interested. Yeah. Um, and, I, and that was the problem there. It, just, it was just a, a bad idea, poorly executed in 1979. The MLS Players Union, is, is, yeah, they have real issues on the table. 
and 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 I would think they're particularly motivated this time because the perception. I'm not going to say it's the reality, but the perception is the players' union got badly deep pantsed in the last negotiation because they they did a contract with with like some really really illusory kind of free agency. You know, basically if you had 20 years in and 15 with the same team, yeah, you could get to be free. <laughs> not quite that bad. You know, not, yeah. But. Uh, and and so so like five months later, the league suddenly introduces targeted allocation money, right, basically right. bragging, "Here's the money we had to spend. You were you didn't fight for it, so now we have to use it this way." So I, I think they're I think the players are particularly the, the union is I should say, particularly motivated to be strong this time and really fight. And they've seen you know the league's grown. It's added you know a bunch of other teams since then. The expansion teams, the expansion fees get higher. There's more TV money. You know, now one would think now is the time for the players to really plant their flag and fight, and the players' union may want to do that. And 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 the goals would be admirable. You know, increasing the minimum salary. I mean, they doubled it last time from 33 to 66. But think about those numbers in professional sports. You know, it was 66,000. Yeah. Um, the fact that it was low as 30 as 33,000 in the first place is embarrassing. Uh, they, they want to bump that up. They want to. Improve, they, they would like to increase the salary cap. Uh, they, I'm sure they want first-class air travel because that's been a, a common complaint. All admirable goals, but you know the, the problem is if the owners say no, we're not willing to do that. The only way the players can force the hand is with a strike, and then and then you run into the real cultural divide. And, and again, I, I hate using terms like that because of the current political landscape. But it, it, in soccer, it's a legitimate. It's a legitimate thing. You know the, the the American, not even so much the American player, but the the player who lives here year round, versus uh, in, in 1979 it was the lone player. We don't have that so much anymore. But versus the, the people who play here during the season and then go home, you know they're not necessarily. History has shown they're not on the same page. You know the fact that Amer- uh, you know quote American American player wants to hold out for a higher minimum salary. Because sixty-six thousand isn't a whole lot. If you, 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 you can't really live on that if you're working here, as opposed to to a Caribbean player, that may be a king's ransom. Right. That's more money than he's going to get playing at home. You know, it, it, I love that. They're paying me just fine. I'm happy. How, how do you incentivize that player to honor a picket line and not come to work? Mm. That's you know, and 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 and, and, and also. The other problem with a situation like that is, like, well, I could strike or I could just go to some other country and play and get paid just as much. I wouldn't lose a paycheck. You know, why would I want to do this? That's that's the difficulty that that, that the MLS player unions player union faces if they're gonna if they're going to save a row and threaten a strike and want to um, and flex their muscle. You know, striking is easy. You don't show up and go to work. It's easy until people realize they're not getting a paycheck anyway. And that, and that applies whether you're a truck driver or a soccer player. That's not picking with soccer players. I mean, the talk of a strike is always a lot easier than the strike itself. Indeed, the threat of a strike. The threat of a strike is often more more useful as far as getting concessions at the bargaining table than actually striking. Because then once you go out, the, the employer doesn't want to give you any more, doesn't want to reward a strike. And we basically, you know, uh, that's that. You know, we're not going to give you any more because then you just want to strike all the time. So it, it's difficult no matter who you are, what you do. It's even more difficult when you don't necessarily have the membership, the union membership, completely on board because, again, what's important to half, what's important to the union leaders who, tend, who again, tend to be the full-time living here types isn't going to be all that important. 
to Wayne Rooney, well, he's leaving, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, or 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 even again your your mid tier foreign player who's who's coming over from you know uh, from uh, Bermuda or what have you yeah. to play. Uh, it, it's that that that's the difficulty uh, in any strike. Keeping the membership, keeping United front is always difficult. It's going to be even more difficult when from the very start you have two classes of employees who may not who just view things. Uh, what one thinks is important, the other may not think is important at all because they're just happy to get paid. Yeah. And, that, and that's going to be tough. Well, I was trying to think back to, I'm pretty sure, I've, I've kind of ran through a few different podcasts recently, but Grant Wall had one, and it was after the 99 World Cup of kind of how things played out. And I remember <laughs> Julie Foudy, I'm pretty sure it was her, but she was talking about, that it wasn't a proper strike, but they were kind of threatening to do it if U.S. soccer didn't give certain concessions on their kind of victory tour and how that was all going to play out. Um, but they had said that the team was like in agreement to not play unless they got X, Y, Z. And so U S soccer apparently came back. It was like, well, that's fine. We'll just start, we'll go get you 20 players and we'll still win. And then she said, well, we've already talked to all those players. And so they apparently had talked to like U 20, the 19, 18, 17 and some 15 year olds as well. And just gone all the way down just to like cover their base. But, um, they were able to like <laughs> all get on the same page, but with here, I'm kind of wondering. I'm sure it's you know behind the scenes stuff out the wazoo as far as how much is going on, but I am wondering how much behind the scenes stuff of, of getting those those foreigners on the same bo- board with us, let's say us Americans, um, so that they have a consensus, or is there going to be kind of a split division there? Because I you kind of brought up this point of how. MLS, they they kind of revealed their hand in some sense of hey we have all this money you know of th- this could have gone to y'all but like okay y'all didn't get it so we'll go put it somewhere else so it seems like I could see Tam end up being kind of a, a shot in the foot for the league as far as when CBA ne- negotiations come up of oh we we revealed too much <laughs> like we we could have held some more power here but because we threw all this money out the window like. Now the the players' union they're a little bit more wise as far as what they can get, so. But I, yeah, but to your point, yes, like it it does seems like the everyone getting on the same page is going to be the pretty paramount for this next roll of the dice. Yeah, and it's again, it's that's not unique to soccer. I mean, it's difficult because again, a strike means I'm going to stay home and not get paid. You know, yeah. and, and, and and not and not many people have lived through that anymore. I mean, since Reagan and what he did to the air traffic controllers, you know, striking is is really kind of rare. I mean, growing up, I lived through one. My father went on strike, you know, in the summer of '70. I mean, yeah, there was a time when most you could talk to someone and say, "Oh, yeah, my dad was on strike once." Everyone sort of lived through it, you know. And I remember the summer when I was eating cornflakes for dinner because that's you know there was no money coming in. Yeah. So it's so it, it's never easy. I mean. But it's easier when you have a righteous goal. Yeah. Um, you know, in '79 with the NASL, getting what we already had, you know, i.e., recognition, was not a righteous goal. I was just dumb. I was Ed Garvey wanted to prove he was tough, and, and it backfired. This time, again, if they're if they're tired of traveling, coach, if 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 you're tired of seeing like you know young internationals like Brandon Vincent retiring after a five-year career because he he can make more. Yeah. Moving on with his life than he can as a pro soccer player in his prime. If if enough people are tired of that, if they're tired of the perception, and I don't think, frankly, I don't think they see this yet, but 
if they, if they think that MLS owners are making money and it's time for them to get their piece, you know, uh, there's a certain anger with that. Then, then yeah, you could get everybody on board. I mean, you, you know, you could convince the foreign players. So, yeah, look, you like your 66000 now. I understand it's a king's ransom when you go back to St. Kitts. But if it was 120, you'd have that much more. Work with, you know, we, can, we can make this happen. Yeah, you know, everyone loves money. You, you might be able to incentivize yeah. uh, you, you know, some people to want to go along. Um, but uh, again, as, as sort of, uh, and I kind of alluded to this in, in the in the in the uh, seventy nine in the podcast about the seventy nine strike too. It's also, I mean, this cultural thing. It's not just uh, domestic versus foreign. It's also, and we saw this in seventy nine. It's also what kind of foreign. You know, the English players, for instance, in seventy nine had no problems honoring the strike because they knew the value of unionization in England. You know, Jimmy Hill broke the maximum wage for a lot of those guys. You know, a lot of these guys benefited from it because they were coming up when it happened. They understood, yeah, unions are good, this works, and that's why you had the Fort Lauderdale strikers living up to their name and all of them honored the line, except for, like, you know, a Teofilo Cabeus. He didn't because I think in Peru, they're just, you know, in the Latin American countries, you really didn't have that culture of unionization. I mean, you know, the, the boss was the boss. And, and the problem now is in 79, even you had, some participation in the strike because it was a heavy English influence because of the loan system and because of you know marketing being what it was. Hey, we want white guys who speak English. We're trying to market the game. Um, MLS, because it's cheaper, um, they, they can't compete with Europe. So the young talent, the talent tends to be Latin American, you know, Caribbean, um, and, and unionization may be such a foreign concept to them that they're, they're, no matter how righteous your goals are. Even if you promise them, if you do this, I guarantee I'll double your salary. It may still be difficult to get them on board. Right. Uh, and, and then finally, it popped up in 79, there's immigration rules get kind of funny too. If, if, you're, if you're a green card, if you're, if you're here on a working visa and then engage in a job action, does that, does that jeopardize your green card status? Your working, I shouldn't say green card, your working visa status. It gets to be, again, with soccer, nothing's ever easy. You know, none of the normal templates fit. So, uh, yeah, the, the MLS Players Union has its work cut out for it. Yeah. What was it? I'm trying to, I saw it on Twitter. You retweeted someone who was, it was like Bench Sports. What was it? It was like a BuzzFeed type of like outlet. And the, the owner was like threatening his, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, uh, Barstool, yeah, Barstool, Barstool it, yeah. yeah. The, the Barstool guy. Oh, I guess so, I guess uh, the uh, the the the, uh, the freshman representative out of New York. Um, uh, 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 I'm not going to butcher her name. AOC um, Ocasio Cortez. Right, right. Um, she had said, "Oh, you know, the, the, the these people should unionize," um, and. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, full disclosure, my firm's currently representing another group of, quote, bloggers in, in an FLSA lawsuit because there's, there's been some question of uh, abuse in the industry. Um, I'll just leave it general like that. Uh, so it, it makes sense you would make that suggestion. Yeah, he's like, and then some other lawyers said, oh, if you want to talk about unionization, call me. I'll talk to you for free. And then, and yeah, the owner of Barstool Sports, you call, you, you DM this guy, I'll fire you. Yeah, it's against the law, you know. But, uh, but the, as far as I know, he still isn't taking the tweet down. Um, and, and cause, you know, he's proud of that and good for him. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> 
but you know, there's always that danger. I mean, people, because it's one of those, the law prohibits being terminated because of union activity, but, you know, it's like 18 months before you get your job back. Right. I mean, the National Labor Relations Board does not move quickly. And then, and then you go back to a place where, unless the union's won, you really don't want to go back to it because there's a target on your back. I mean, the system really doesn't work. hasn't worked in some time, uh, which is among the many reasons why unionization across the country is at you know, historic lows. So, um, yeah, I mean, one wonders. I mean, that's because that's the thing, too. If the players went on strike, okay, it, it's, it's curious. Would, would the fan base back the players, saying, yeah, it's about time? Or would the fan base, you know, back the owners saying, oh, these players are ungrateful? Or would the fan base, I know there's one group of the fan base would use that as an excuse to say, yes, blow up MLS and let's get pro rel, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, uh, so it, it's, and, and again, and, uh, what impact that ultimately has on the success of a strike uh, or, or lockout? Because again, if you've seen in sports, it's usually the owners doing the locking out. They don't, because when uh, they, they don't want seasons interrupted. Most of these owners have learned their lesson. It's like, look, if you're not going to sign a contract, we'll just lock you out and not play. Because we have money. Our TV deals are guaranteed. We're still getting money from when people buy a jersey. You're not getting anything. Yeah. Um, so, you know, whether MLS would allow the season to start, running the risk of, you know, halfway through the season, the players would then walk, or whether they'd say, okay, we don't have a deal, we'll just lock you out, which, uh, which you know, may generate some sympathy for the players. But again, among fans, I don't know, I don't know if that has any impact on what the collective bargaining agreement ultimately says. So it's just among the many factors that have to be considered. Right, right. Um, well, <clears throat> we'll, we'll wind down because I, I thought about this quote. You, when you said it in the, the documentary, it really kind of resonated with me for whatever reason. Um, must be the last thing here. But you, you had talked about uh, with the Bethlehem Steel, with them playing at the Union Stadium, you were saying you, you hoped that they would return to the area at some point and you used the phrase because this area deserves soccer. And I was wondering if you could just, kind of on that last note there, kind of dive into that, because it's not something I disagree with at all. Um, but the way you said it, I was trying to think, I was like, what, how many areas in the U.S. deserve soccer? And, like, I, you know, it feels like there are so many markets that there's a team there that is maybe doing well, maybe isn't. But I don't think you could say, oh, um, you know, I'm trying to think of, I don't want to throw any city under the bus, but I, I don't think you, you could say for every city they deserve soccer in the way that yeah, you Yeah, yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, when I, when I say that, I'm thinking, like, historically. I mean, yeah. sir, I mean, look, soccer's here, it's arrived, it's never going away. I mean, you know, we, whether we'll ever be the premiership remains to be seen, but, you know, for the first time in my life, I mean, I'm 54 years old, but I was following the NASL as early as 1973. You know, it's the first time in my life where I know that the league I follow and the team I follow is going to be there next year. You know, I couldn't say that. I mean, the Adams left. The Fury, the Adams folded. The Fury left. Um, you know, the indoor teams, the Fever folded. I mean, in, in the league, in all the various leagues were always on the edge. Uh, so, but but you know, we don't have to worry about that now. So I, when I say deserve, it, it's I tend to think of... Um, what's a sweat equity, I guess. When soccer was struggling, there were certain markets that supported it and, 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 and were hubs. And, you know, and a prime example, given yesterday's news, I mean, I know why they didn't have a team, you know, but it's, it's, it's incredible that it took until, uh, you know, how many years of MLS's existence, you know, 
close to a quarter century of MLS's existence before St. Louis finally got a team. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, St. Louis it was was the was was the epicenter for American American born American soccer for decades. You know, Philadelphia deserved a team. They finally got one in 2010. But there's a team that there's a city that professionally had always supported teams when they were here. You know, in the in the in the, in the era of the second American Soccer League. You know, they, they always had two teams in the city. They were both good, supported. Um, you could point to places like that. As opposed to, like, for instance, I would have, I, I was always shaking my head. Why, other than for TV, why was MLS so desperate to get to Atlanta? Atlanta's never supported pro soccer. Yeah. Who cares? Well, it goes to show, again, yeah. showing you how the world has changed. Sure. Now, of course, it, it's, it's, it's a flagship franchise. Good for them. Maybe Miami will also surprise me. Miami's another city that's never lined up to support professional soccer if you go back to the NASL or even ASL version 3, indeed, the Miami Fusion. Um, hopefully they'll prove me wrong, too, because, again, it's different now. But it's great that it's different now, but certain, certain locations deserve to have their work rewarded. And that's why when I talk about the Lehigh Valley, look, Lehigh Valley is not major league, at least until such time as you get pro-rel, okay? But it doesn't move the needle for TV purposes. It doesn't move the needle for attendance purposes, for, uh, you know, market purposes. But, you know, it should have, but again, pro soccer is not just Division One. There's a vibrant, the USL is vibrant. You know, um, NASL, if it ever gets, comes back from lawsuits, wasn't doing too bad until, you know, certain people got overly ambitious and, and, and decided to start suing instead of just, you know, occupying this niche. The nice niche that it had. Allentown, Bethlehem. I mean, between Bethlehem Steel, between the Pennsylvania Stoners, and basically the Pennsylvania Stoners were an MLS team. You know, 30 years ahead of its time, um, as far as it having academy and building grassroots and things like that. Um, you know, th- that area has contributed a lot to the growth of soccer in this country. They ought to have a professional team that that, that the fans could go and see. Yeah. You know. Uh, maybe one day, well, they, the rowdies are there. I mean, I, I, it's, it, I, other than St. Louis, St. Louis has been rewarded. Um, I can't think off the top of my head of any other city that kind of fits right now. I mean, I, I mean, as MLS has grown, whether by accident or otherwise, they've kind of hit all the places that made soccer work. I mean, I guess you could point to Fall River, kind of right, but that would be minor league too. I mean, if they would get around the building stadium, fine, give them a USL franchise, but. Now, I think certain locations, and, and, and they're fewer now, I really can't point to anyone. That, again, St. Louis was the most glaring example, and now they've finally been rewarded. Um, but, yeah, certain locations, you know, shouldered the laboring oar back when soccer was struggling to, to get a, a foothold in this country. And, uh, and again, you could go um, uh, uh, 10 years ago, and Philadelphia didn't have a team. 10 years ago, Philadelphia didn't have a team. St. Louis didn't have a team. There wasn't a new version of Bethlehem Steel. Um, uh, some of the other markets, I mean, 10 years ago, Portland, they were minor league. You know, uh, Seattle just got their team. Uh, they always had a minor league team. But, you know, the markets that had carried American soccer in this country during, during the, the growing pains years of the 70s and the 80s were, were left out in the cold uh, as opposed to, well, I don't want to get people fired up, but there's certain MLS teams, I'm still scratching my head as to why they have a team. And of course, and and the lack of attendance at games sort of bears us out. I have no idea why you put the team in. Columbus is a prime example. I'll name Columbus because everyone was so worked up about them last year. <laughs> oh my God, save the crew! How can you move out of Columbus? No one ever wanted Columbus in the first place. They got there because 
the league needed a tenth team, and 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 Hunt was willing to put a team there, and so and yeah, he built his own stadium. That's fine, but it was it was never a major market. I mean, everyone's wringing their hands. I kept using the analogy. Uh, well, you know, because everyone, oh, it's a famous team. They built the first stadium. Yeah, Syracuse Nationals. Their owner invented the 24-second clock, Save pro basketball. Where are they today? Don't look for them. They're in Philadelphia. They're the 76ers now. Teams move. You know, Brooklyn Dodgers broke the color line, a seminal event in American history. They're in L.A. now. Teams move. Get over yourself, you know. <laughs> um, and, 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 that's, and, and they were one of several teams. And it's like, why? You know, again, I'm sorry, guys. Colorado, why they ever got a team? I mean, yeah. they weren't supported in the NASL. They're not supported now. They yeah. built a stadium. That's great because you could get away with that. Now with soccer-specific stadium, you, you can get away with being only mildly supported. But other than the fact that they were willing to be there in the first place, because, again, lest we forget, you know, it's not like people were lining up to have soccer teams in 1996. They struggled to get a 10-team league um, uh, you know, with, with Columbus sort of saving the day. Um, uh, so you know, and, and some of those markets are still there. Some some. Like Atlanta. Atlanta's been a pleasant surprise. People have turned out in droves and it looks like they're going to stay. It's not a fad. Cincinnati, I mean, other than the Comets in the 70s and uh, the ASL team, had no history at all. Um, they're, support, they're being supported. Again, more sign that soccer's arrived. Yeah. Uh, but you look at Houston. You know, I mean, uh, uh, more, than, more than one person pointed out for the, for the uh, whatever final the Galaxy was in last night. Um, uh, it was played in Houston, and the atmosphere was much better than any Dynamo game. Yeah, I mean, uh, why Houston as a team, other than some people thought it would touch certain markets, uh, you know, attract certain communities, uh, is anyone's guess. Because, again, historically, there'd be no expectation of success there. Yeah. And, and, and lo and behold, they haven't, they haven't made it. But someone built a stadium, so it's all good. <laughs> 